This is the Resilient Disciples Podcast, powered by Awana. I'm your host, Ross Cochran. Thank you for listening. We've got a great episode for y'all today. As we wrap up a series of conversations focused on technology and the impact it has on the kids in our communities. Amy Crouch is a student at Cornell University and the author of My Tech Wise Life. Amy comes to this idea of wisdom around technology biologically. Andy Crouch, Amy's dad, is an author as well, and he wrote My Tech Wise Family, a book you may or may not be familiar with. What you need to know is that the Crouches made very specific choices with technology in their household, but Amy's book is not another list of things you should or shouldn't do with your phone. I believe the insight she shares in the book and in this conversation is the exact right place for us to land as we navigate what our relationships look like with technology and how we are passing that on to the next generation. You can learn more about Amy and her book in the show notes of today's episode. We start the conversation with Amy sharing how her book came together. And I thank you for listening to the Resilient Disciples podcast. It's sort of funny because it actually didn't concern me too much that my dad had written a book. What I was concerned about was just how many books there are already in the world. And I was just sort of like, uh, you know, should I does the world need another book? Sure. Um, and as somebody who loves reading, that sounds, um, I know that can sound sort of strange, but I really, um, when we came up with this idea of writing a book, I was, I really wanted to be certain that it would actually make a difference, that it would bring a useful new perspective. It wouldn't just be re-saying uh, things that people had already heard a thousand times. Mm-hmm. I think what, what really convinced me on that score, honestly, was that the target audience of the book would be teenagers or teenagers and young people, because I just felt like that was something that was completely missing from the conversation, that there were so many resources aimed at parents and just really very few resources aimed at young people ourselves. So I I think it was just that desire to make sure that I wasn't like putting extra paper into the world, but was really (laughs) saying something that people would find helpful and and even inspiring. Sure. Well, I certainly did. I don't know if I'm a young person anymore, but I certainly did. So mission accomplished as far as as as, uh, my regard is concerned. But I wanted to start there because I think folks need to understand the ways in which your perspective here is a unique perspective Mm. that yes, you grew up in a family that was very intentional around the areas of technology and you all became kind of subject matter experts in this thing that we're all trying to navigate in, but that you're, that that does not mean that you are walking around telling everyone to throw their phones out the window or to never watch TV again, that you by coming at it from the perspective of wisdom, it inherently Mm. is inviting to folks no matter where they currently stand with technology or whatever their sort of current issues or perspectives are on it. The other sort of just idea of putting this book together that was intriguing to me is just, was this always kind of like Amy's thing? Like how did your friends react to this? How does, you know, Mm. when you're putting this together, does, do people in your immediate peer group resonate with the kind of stuff that you're talking about or were they the inspiration for the book? 
Absolutely. Um, I, I had so many exciting conversations with friends and with peers through the course of writing the book. Um, because I wanted, I mean, some of them I framed as like actual interviews. Like I went and interviewed people, but also I was just always on the hunt for hearing how, how people my age, my friends, my peers were engaging with technology, how they felt about it, how, you know, what, what, what role their devices were playing in their lives. And so absolutely from, from the very beginning, I did not want to just write some book that was just about me. Um, (laughs) I wanted to be able, oh, as, as, as sort of silly as this might sound to be able to genuinely in some small way, represent my generation. Um, not that one book can ever do that in one task. Right. But, um, just, I, I wanted to make sure that I was speaking to the concerns and the hopes that I saw in my friends. Um, and not to be just kind of making up what, what I thought was the most exciting story to tell, but rather learning from the people around me, what needed to be said. No, that that, absolutely. And again, I think you did that in spades because I think that in the conversation around being tech wise, as opposed to um, having these hard and fast rules around technology is you, you draw this comparison between how technology can distract us, but is not actually fulfilling to us and um, the wonder that can come out of boredom. And can you speak to how that, uh, the distractions from technology, what what was that sort of evolution like for you? Hmm. Yeah, I think practically everyone my age can relate to that feeling of scrolling through your phone for an hour Mm -hmm. and somehow feeling even more bored at the end of it. (laughs) Um, and I think what that kind of behavior, which we do so frequently, what that kind of behavior reveals is that somehow all of the entertainment that the internet can provide is not enough to release us from boredom. But I think it really is true that somehow, despite the fact that there is literally more entertainment on the internet than any person could ever finish. Um, it still somehow isn't enough for us. Um, which is, which is so mysterious, I think. Um, but also a really important clue to maybe who we're meant to be and what we're meant to be doing with our lives. I think what we find when we sort of push through hours of boredom, um, is that, true enjoyment of the world, what I like to call wonder in the book, kind of results from patience and that patience can make our joy um, and our wonder so much deeper um, than 30 seconds of flashy entertainment ever could. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think I heard uh, actually in a recent episode of this podcast. Someone made the distinction about how technology forces us to ask this question. Do we want this thing to be faster? Do we want it to be slower? And Mm -hmm. so much of what you're talking about, you talk about in the book with patients about um, the ability to just take things slow can often lead to far more wonder than any sort of glowing rectangle could provide for us. Can you define for folks, you call it in the book, you call it the seven minute rule, but what is that? What is that? Yes. This is so great. And I did not come up with it. 
Um, the sociologist Sherry Turkle has written this wonderful set of books based on her research about how people relate to each other, you know, conversations, relationships, and um, specifically how screens and devices interact with that. Um, and I believe the book in which she introduces this rule is Alone Together, um, okay. or possibly it may be Reclaiming Conversation. Both of those books kind of draw on this principle. And she says there, there's this seven minute rule in conversations for the first seven minutes of a conversation. Um, you can pretty much like keep the conversation going on. Nothing. You know, you talk about the weather um, here, here at Cornell, we talk about our exams. Sure. Um, you like just chat about sports, whatever. And you can keep that kind of small, you know, not very meaningful talk going for about seven minutes. But she says, after seven minutes, the people in the conversation have to make a choice. They have to take a risk even. You have to volunteer a little more instead of just, oh, I'm doing great. Say a little something more about what's going on or share something that uh, you loved recently or hated. There's this moment at which you have to choose to go deeper or you choose to just abandon the conversation and pick up your phone. Yeah. And I think what's so good about this rule is that it's honestly not just true of conversation, but I think of so much of our lives, so much of the really just any of the good things in our life, you kind of have to wait seven minutes um, or, or maybe even a little longer. You have to sort of make your way through the stuff that doesn't feel big or meaningful before you get um, to the kinds of relationships, the kinds of experiences that will change your life. And this has honestly made me, made me think some very deep, like, um, thoughts about the creation of the world, because, um, obviously the world we are currently in is, um, post fall, but at the same time, God's creation is, it still bears the marks of his goodness and his intent. And I think it is really remarkable that God's world does not provide constant dopamine rushes. We, we can certainly imagine that God, if he so chose, could have created a world which provided just as much absolutely constant entertainment as my smartphone. Sure. Um, and I think it is really revealing that the goodness of God's creation is unfurled slowly. Um, I think it is really significant that yeah. um, very rarely is our experience of God's good world um, sort of flashy and fast. Um, and so I think we need to develop the skills that it takes to wait those seven minutes to pay a little more attention. And then we'll be so surprised by what we discover. Amen. Well, and I think... I would imagine folks who are listening to this are replaying the conversations that they've had recently where at that seven minute mark, they dove in or at that seven minute mark, they picked up their phones and you, you know, you wrote this book primarily with teens and young folks in mind. And I'm curious, you know, not only in the research that you were able to do with the Barna group, but just from your own perspective, do you feel that teens and folks who are even younger are even waiting seven minutes? Like, what does this this look like for the group of folks mm -hmm. who have grown up with this technology rather than watched it evolve? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think the answer is very complicated as sure. of course, all, all answers to good questions. 
um, are complicated. I think, mm, well, on the one hand, some conversations don't even start because of devices. I think in particular of, um, what, what happens when I walk into a classroom, um, there were kind of two options. You could talk to your friends if you had friends in the class, or you could look at your phone. And so when I would walk into a classroom, I would say about half of the people there were, you know, just looking down at their phone. And I don't want to say that Gen Z, like, can't talk to strangers because that's completely not true. Um, we absolutely can, but I do think that the phone gives you an option to not have to talk to somebody new. It just gives you the option. If you don't know anyone else in the classroom, or if you're, you know, sitting on the bus with, with a bunch of strangers to just not even attempt to start a conversation. And I remember when I was a freshman in college, I, I, it could be really hard to just start talking. Right. Um, but it was so worth it because of course the people that I gathered up the courage to talk to or who, who gathered the courage to talk to me became my beloved friends. And so I needed to make that leap of courage, um, and not to just opt out. Um, so that's one thing I think phones might be preventing us from even starting a conversation, on the happier end of the things though, I will say, I think we're very self-aware about this. There are very few, few uh, young people out there who will say, oh yes, I love it when someone pulls out their phone while they're talking to me. It's just great. Like, no, that's, we, we all feel that that is not the way that mm, that kind of conversation isn't one in which I feel loved or even attended to. And so I absolutely do see people my age being very intentional about um, choosing not to use phones in social contexts. Um, One kind of fun thing I've seen is people can like, um, if you're at lunch, say, or dinner, um, putting phones in a pile in the middle of the table. And I think those kinds of behaviors are a lot more common than you might imagine, because we know that seven minutes isn't all we want from conversation. Well said. Because I think that touches on something that I want to shift to next, which is one of the things that I I most appreciated about the book was the ways in which you talked about a a posture towards technology Mm. in a way that uh, my perception at least has been that folks who have been uh, older generations that have been sort of overwhelmed by the rapid evolving mm. nature of this technology and this unique, you know, genuinely historically unique moment that we live in compared to folks like yourself who have, who grew up with it more, or in your particular case, intentionally did not grow up with it. This book for me addressed so many misconceptions that mm. I think older generations might have with your generation or beyond in association with technology. But what stands out to you as a sort of misconception that an older generation has, mm. you know, particularly with, their kids or grandkids and what they would be dealing with in the world of tech? I think mm, the number one thing I like to say to parents is um, for us, the virtual world is the real world. I think understandably to, to older, you know, especially to parents, I think it can feel so silly to worry about something like, oh, I didn't get added to this group chat or this person didn't follow me on Instagram. Um, and I can understand that from the outside, those can look like 
trivial things that don't have any real bearing to your, to your actual life. But for most teenagers, that is just not true. The interactions that happen online are just as important as the interactions that happen in person. Um, getting excluded online hurts just as much as being excluded in person. And I think it is really important to understand the uh, kind of the depth of um, of mm, the depth almost to which um, the virtual world world has saturated our real lives. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Why are kids leaving the church after high school? What if the strategy to change this started in children's ministry? The Child Discipleship Forum is where children's ministry leaders, senior pastors, and parents gather to collaborate, pray, learn, and dialogue about the most critical factors to shape long-term discipleship in children. Featuring speakers like Ed Stetzer and Gabe Lyons, as well as children's ministry champions like Dr. Wes Stafford, we will unite together at the Child Discipleship Forum in Nashville or online on September 16th and 17th. This is a critical moment for us to shape the future of the church and make the greatest generation of disciples the world has ever seen. Save your seat at childdiscipleshipforum.com. How do you navigate the relationship between technology and your own discipleship? And how would you mm-hmm. begin to help folks understand how they can do that for them themselves, but also for the kids in their lives? Yeah. Well, I think the important um, foundation or underlying principle is that technology may be new, but none of the problems <laughs> of technology are new. Yeah. Um, that underneath um, concerns about, as I said, <laughs> the group chat or social media are the very oldest concerns of the human condition, right? Of loneliness, of hopelessness, of fear, of disappointment. And so I almost think that mm, we we don't need new answers to these uh, these new problems because yeah. the problems aren't even new. Um, we need to be using very old tools to effectively combat the ways that our devices are are shaping us, I think. And so what I, at at certain points while writing the book, I almost felt silly because what I recommend is is so simple, right? It's these ancient practices of stillness and silence, um, of rest, Sabbath, um, of time in community, especially in prayer. Um, And these are not like, you know, fun, exciting, new things. Um, These are practices that the Christian church has known about for since its beginning. Although I will say your Sabbaths, especially your childhood Sabbaths did sound awesome. I should just throw that out there. They were great. I I'm such a, okay. I love the Sabbath. I hope we can talk about that later. I could, I can talk for hours about it. Um, But so what, what I would say is that maybe the most important element of discipleship relating to devices is self-examination. Another very, very old concept. 
Um, because I think that devices just work. They do so well at sneaking into our lives. Um, you like when you spend an hour on your phone, it doesn't feel like an hour, right? Yeah. Um, when you, if you notice, like if you check your phone every single morning, right after you wake up, you might not even notice that that's a habit that's crept into your life. And so I think that it is really crucial for us to be developing our skills of self-examination, um, to be able to not take uh, technology's presence in our life for granted, to yeah. be able to question the ways in which devices are influencing our posture and shaping our minds and hearts. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a great place for folks to start because odds are, if you are a concerned parent who's, who is listening to this, you do need to hear Amy's words about uh, how self-aware all of us are about our relationships with technology, mm. but that there is a role for sort of calling the things out that you're talking about, right? That it might be a more helpful thing to point out to your child, hey, it's been an hour of you being scrolling on your phone, than to take the phone away or to have more hard, uh, less relationship-driven rules and practices. Yeah, and I would also say... Um, Entering into that as a family too, you know, obviously parents need to be able to say you've been on your phone for an hour. Like that is part of what it means to be a parent. They need to be able to say that. But I think in addition, parents need to be able to model to kids. I've been on my phone for an hour and I'm going to put it down or I'm, you know, I've, I've opened up Facebook and you know what, now I'm going to close it because I'm done with it. And I'm not interested um, in wasting hours of my life to it. And so I think that in addition to um, encouraging kids in their own self-examination, I think that parents have this amazing opportunity to model what that looks like for kids. A hundred percent. And I think what I so appreciate about that is it is a great example of uh, the speck in your child's eye and the plank in your own, right? Where... <laughs> Uh, I mean, even, you know, my, my kids are five and one and a half. So, but even I've had those moments of watching my one and a half year old uh, become just completely engrossed in something that his sister was watching and realizing, oh, I got to break that. And then yeah. realizing that the reason he learned that was because of seeing in me my own ways of becoming completely engrossed in something that I'm watching. You know, I think folks really need to hear one, I think everyone is listening. Everyone within the sound of my voice should get get the book. You should get two copies. You're careless. You'll lose one. Um, but also the what I so appreciated about it, and it was this framing around wisdom, so it makes sense. But you make a point to go several times to talk about how what worked for you, what worked for your family, may not work for everybody. But in pursuing wisdom, odds are you're going to find practices and habits that make sense for you and your mm -hmm. context. Now that the book's out there, now that the book, now that this thing that has sort of existed as a Word document on your computer is actually permeating in the world, I'm curious what kind of reaction you've gotten to folks on practices that they they have found to be most beneficial or things that really feel like are working for a larger amount of people. You know, you weren't prescriptive in the book at all, but now I'm going to ask you to be prescriptive uh, based off of what folks are, what you're hearing from uh, your readers. I think the no phones at night rule, which is one of the few like rule rules I yeah. bring up in the book. Um, I've heard that that is really helpful and I'm not surprised because it's really helpful in my own life too. <laughs> um, but leaving your phone out of your bedroom, it, it's sort of, 
I think I read about this in the book, but it's kind of embarrassing how impactful that is. Um, I like to think that I have the self-control and the willpower to not look at my phone if it is next to me on, you know, my bedside table at night. I don't, I just don't. And so I think, yeah, I have absolutely heard from people that that act of humility of saying, you know what? No, I'm going to use an alarm clock instead, leaving the phone out of the bedroom, going to sleep and waking up without your phone. It's just amazing. What a difference that makes. Um, and I also like that it's very easy to implement. Um, it's, you know, I, I wish I could take, tell everyone to take a 24 hour Sabbath, but that is not something easy to implement as good as it may be. And so just that simple practice of not bookending your day with your phone that can change everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting to me. I do want to talk about the Sabbath because I feel like the thing is out of all of the sort of wisdom principles that your the book talks about, one of the things that resonates to me about this idea of rest is how it is needed now more than ever and how your generation, my generation, and the micro generations that exist between us, this idea of rest and this idea of Sabbath for the church community, it is often this thing that's sort of like talked about in the way that, you know, on New Year's Eve, someone's saying like, yeah, this year is going to be the year I lose 10 pounds. How have you been able to make this such a lifelong kind of defining habit for you? I am so, so glad you brought this up and that I, that I hinted that it would be good to bring up. Um, (laughs) because I, I think that the Sabbath needs to change our lives. We need the Sabbath and we need it to change our lives now. Yeah. Um, goodness, where even to begin? Well, first of all, I think I'm just lucky. My family kept the Sabbath for as long as I can remember. Mm. I, yeah, I genuinely, I couldn't even, I could not like name a time when we started keeping the Sabbath. So I think my parents must have, um, started way, way before I was even born. I should ask them about that. Um, but Uh, it just became this rhythm of my life. I honestly see it as just such a gift of grace that truly through no goodness of my own, I was placed into a family where every week we had this rhythm and I, it was imperfect. We frequently, um, quite, quite frequently, um, did not keep the Sabbath as consistently as we would have liked, but what we all found was that it was worth it to mm, the discipline that it took so completely paid off. And when I got to college, um, for the first time I realized, Oh, I could just not keep the Sabbath. And I realized on the one hand that I could choose to not take a Sabbath. And that if I did so, it would be catastrophic because I, I'm so grateful to be at college and at a, a, you know, a place where intellect and, and hard work is valued, but there is such a powerful idol around me, all around me of, of work, of busyness, of, of not getting enough sleep, um, which is so deeply destructive, this belief that it is our work 
um, that can get us to a kind of secular salvation. Um, and I think that the Sabbath is one of the things that has managed to keep me sane and grounded in my identity, not solely as a student, as a laborer, but as a child of God who is, you know, his beloved and he gives to his beloved sleep. (laughs) It's one of my favorite verses. I think one of the things folks would love to rest the most from, and your research supports this, is their relationship with technology. And so I say that just to say, if if you don't feel like you can take a full 24-hour perfect Sabbath right now, one, Amy's not su- suggesting that you have to. But also, taking a Sabbath from technology is a pretty good place to start. Taking that moment to take a rest and watch the difference that that makes in your life begins to... I think affirm exactly what you're talking about, about how this is a gift and how it is part of how God designed us. And I think you, you said catastrophic, the, the dangers of this current lack of sleep, pride, this sort of uh, constant driving pressure that exists for your generation and beyond, and how we have data now to support the ways in which technology has made those pressures worse. So I, I just implore folks, to begin to understand the the pressing nature of what's talked about and that this is not something that you can sort of just brush off until your your spiritual mm-hmm. uh, New Year's Eve. Yes, I would echo that. And I would also say that rest reveals mm-hmm. and fasting reveals too. And so taking... I wonder, I think maybe a lot of us have had that feeling of at the end of the long day, you sit down and suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, I'm so tired. But, and you didn't quite realize that during the day, at least this has happened to me several times. I just don't like, while I'm rushing around, I don't realize how exhausted I am. And then when I actually rest, I realize how much I needed it. And also if you give up technology for 24 hours, I think you will see how much you depend on it. And I don't say that in an accusatory way at all, um, but giving up something makes you recognize the, the importance that it has in your life. And so I both think that sometimes you almost need to take a Sabbath to realize how much you need a Sabbath. Yeah. Um, and also you need to be able to give up technology to realize how much you depend on it. I'd say the other thing is even for just a week, try completely setting your phone away when you're with other people. Um, Even even if you're just like sitting down and having a bowl of cereal across from a member of your family um, in the groggy morning hours, just see what it would be like if your interactions with other people were not constantly mediated by screens. Mm. And that's especially difficult right now, of course, as we kind of um, continue to navigate the pandemic. But I think it is almost even more important because you're spending so much more time with the people that you live with. You're spending so much time with a very small circle of people um, that like it becomes too easy to take those people for granted and to think that whatever is on your phone is so much more interesting than the human being created in God's image who is right in front of you. And I think that is one small step that could bring so much more hope and joy into your life. The Resilient Disciples Podcast is powered by Awana. 
Awana is a global nonprofit organization dedicated to equipping leaders to reach kids with the gospel and engage them in lifelong discipleship. Awana is fueled by the generous support of individuals, churches, and organizations, as well as resource sales. Subscribe to the podcast today so you never miss an episode and go to resilientdisciples.com for more resources and many more of these conversations. The podcast is mixed, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Ross Cochran. Our theme song is Fresh Air by Christian hip-hop artist Josiah Williams and Hits by Jude. You also heard I'll Let Go, provided by Josiah Williams from his album, Rerouting 2. Thank you for listening. We'll talk next week. We'll talk next week.